develop that growth mindset that way, then whenever it comes time for changing under constraints, it's a lot easier. We're experiencing the most disruptive time in the history of healthcare. But with this podcast, I'm going to connect you with industry and CRNA thought leaders to help you thrive in these unprecedented. I'm your host, Randy Moore, CEO of the AANA, and this is Moving the Needle. Today on the show, uh, I have the pleasure to talking with uh, Dr. Kevin Driscoll, and uh, we're going to get into uh, what he's seen with uh, in terms of the impact of the pandemic on his work at NIH, and also how it's impacting uh, the role that he has as president of the NBCRNA. Uh, since we have him, we're going to talk about certification, recertification, uh, what his vision is for the future of that as it relates to nurse anesthetists, and his priorities as president of the NBCRNA. Dr. Driscoll is a staff anesthetist at the National Institutes of Health. This is the world's largest research-only dedicated hospital where they take on medically complex cases. Prior to that, he was at John Hopkins Hospital where he helped lead the first collaborative unit-based safety program in the Department of Surgery, as well as co-chairing a John Hopkins medicine clinical community. He received his DNP from Yale University, and Kevin currently serves as the president of the NBCRNA. Well, Kevin, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Thank you so much for agreeing to, to join us on Moving the Needle. Uh, I know that you uh, have a lot going on in your professional life and in your personal life, and just like everybody else, so it, it's really an honor to, to spend some time with you today. Well, likewise, Randy. I think, uh, thank you for inviting me. Um, we often sit on different viewpoints in, in our profession, and sometimes those viewpoints need to meet together. And so I think I uh, congratulate the ANA on starting uh, this podcast. I think it's important. Thanks, Kevin. So before we get into to the, to the NBCRNA and certification and recertification and all of that, I, I'm, I want to talk, I've taken the opportunity, I think, with every guest that I've had to briefly talk about the pandemic uh, and, and how it's uh, impacted Certainly, yes, the work that's going on at the NBCRNA and you're as president of the organization, uh, you, you and, and the staff have been busy responding to that in the context of the work that you do there, but also in, in your work at NIH. And, and, and I'm curious if you can give us a, some visibility into, into what's going on. What, what has it been like and, and what are you seeing and where do you think things are going? Yeah, um, great question. I, you know, the vantage point from working inside the NIH where we um, are running clinical trials, especially on a new uh, Moderna um, booster for South African variant. But when I look from professionally, I've seen a lot of my colleagues that have uh, had to change their job function. Some of them moved into the ICU. I've heard some of them that moved in rest respiratory therapy. I know one person that moved into housekeeping uh, as really? a CRNA. And I was like, well, that's interesting, a little bit odd. Uh -huh. But from, a, from a, a perspective of the profession, one thing I've been extremely proud of is the, the removal of supervision requirements, because I think that there's always been this talk and chatter of um, that, you know, when seconds count, you need a physician there. And I think now we can actually start saying, no, you really don't. That how we practice as CRNAs is safe, it's proven in the literature, but also how we uh, certify and recertify also demonstrates that those, those confidence of our providers. I think... Uh, from the NIH perspective, what we've been working on is um, 3D printing of ventilators. So we've made a 3D printed ventilator that's the size of uh, a wallet. 
and it can work off of anything. It can work off of a, a compressed air compressor. You can throw it across the room and it works off the same basic principles of uh, airplane stalling. So it gives a pressure control to a certain point and then it actually releases that pressure. We can't control the rate of it because it just works off the compliance of the lungs like pressure control would. And so we uh, have done field testing of that in high fidelity uh, lung simulation and also in animal models. And so this may make it downstream to some of our, our uh, veterans and especially people that are in the field. So whenever you need to bag and drag people, you can hook up this ventilator and actually make it work for them. But again, these ventilators are, are 3D printed and can be moved into um, production extremely quickly. Did, you, did, did COVID instigate that was that, or was that already in play? No, yeah, COVID, COVID instigated it. And, yeah. and um, you have the Defense Applied Research, DARPA, that they sort of come up with questions like, if you can do anything, here we have a problem. If you can figure out how to solve this problem, and they bring a bunch of minds together and say, what do you do? And people just start throwing a lot of darts at the board. Where I'm talking to you today is actually Google helped create this at the NIH. It's an innovation lab where no one owns this space. So you bring in collaborators in a neutral space to come up with ideas. And then we start throwing these ideas against the board. And really, this is about the only place in the world that you can do this because um, we only deal with research here. And um, so anyone that comes on our, on our campus is in a clinical trial. There is no insurance. It's all picked up by the benevolence of the federal taxpayer. And um, a lot of the things that we're doing here are looking into the future of how we should treat and cure patients. And uh, some of these things are phase one clinical trials where it's only six people. But it's sort of the tip of spear of really what's happening with uh, medical advancement. And a lot of our immune therapy for cancer, what we're seeing with that is actually the same thing that's happening with uh, COVID patients, that you have a cytokine storm. And so what we're seeing with our immune-based therapies, with CAR-T therapy, with um, TIL uh, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, we're also seeing that same thing with COVID. And so what we do is we'll bring COVID patients in and we put them in a natural history um, protocol where we'll follow their disease process over time. So me, I'm involved in clinical trials. They take my blood every month and they're following me as a healthcare provider in COVID and me dealing with patients. So they tr they're tracking me for the next two years. Also, since I've received the vaccine, they're tracking my antibodies as well as uh, when I receive boosters. So what brought you to the NIH? Why, what, what, what about the kind of work that you're doing is intriguing and, and, and gets you out of bed in the morning? Yeah, uh, I'll tell you, every day I go to work here, it's, uh, it's, it's been the... Um, sort of the best day of work, my first day of work. I've never had a, a dreaded going to work here at the NIH. I've worked in academic settings. I've worked in private sector as a CRNA. In academic settings, uh, I was able to do a lot, especially at Johns Hopkins Hospital, but you would always sort of hit that glass ceiling of what more you can do. And um, I think like the DMP programs and, and the, the quality of work that DMPs are doing right now in these academic center, centers is starting to chip away at that glass and allow it to open up that um, the CRNAs provide a lot of quality and even quality outside of what we do uh, besides delivering direct anesthesia. When I was in the private sector, it was sort of uh, turn and burn. And, uh, you know, you eat what you kill and what you can build. Yeah. It was fun. I helped change uh, their model for uh, a large group. And, um, and then funny enough, uh, one of uh, someone I knew as a resident said that there's an opening at the NIH. They're going to start increasing capacity with CRNAs. And they invited me to come over and do an interview. And uh, the first day I came in here, I loved it. There is... Uh, there's a collegiality. It doesn't matter if someone's a Nobel laureate, a Lasker winner, that everyone's allowed to speak their mind and uh, it's respected. And so I think that's what um, I've enjoyed most about this job is that um, you can contribute something on many levels and it's always appreciated. Mm. 
That's fascinating. And I'm curious because in, in your day job, you're, you're, you're doing some really interesting and exciting things and being involved in a lot of, I think research, it's going to change people's lives, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you also have another gig, uh, which is that you're the president of the NBCRNA, which is a certification recertification body for nurse anesthetists. And I'm curious why, what, what, what attracted you to that kind of work to, to volunteering with NBCRNA? Yeah. I think the great thing about our profession is we have, a ton of different ways to contribute back. And we have to find our niche. Where's that niche that we want to contribute back to? Um, I joined the NBCRNA almost like eight years ago as an emerging leader fellow, as a new position. Mm-hmm. Someone's supposed to be less than five years in their profession. And they allowed me to have a seat at the board, not a voting member, but allowed to be engaged in the conversation. And I thought the depth and breadth of the conversations were, were wonderful. I've been on boards before through Sigma Theta Tau. They had an Omeda board mentorship program, but I pretty much was sitting over in the corner and just yeah. observing. And um, exactly, yeah, the little kids table. Uh-huh. And um, <laughs> the nice thing about the NBCRNA is I was sitting right at the table. That um, I, it wasn't a kick underneath the table when I wanted to ask a question, and so they had just allowed me to engage in the conversation, to challenge their thought processes, and also to contribute. And um, it was only supposed to be for one year. After that one year was over, um, they brought me into the room and they said, "Well, what do we do uh, with you?" And I'm like, what do you mean? And what do you do with me? And they said, well, it's over almost. They said, what do you think we should do moving forward? And I said, you can't take this opportunity away from anyone else. You got to bring someone else in here. I go, you've reinvigorated my, uh, how I look at the profession and how I want to contribute. So they met in the room for 30 minutes and they said, you know what? We're going to keep you for another year. And now we're going to have a new emerging leader fellow. And so I was able to stay on. Whenever I went off the board as emerging leader fellow for two years, I always kept on thinking about the work they were doing. And so it drew me back to them and I uh, applied for an open board seat and just uh, have contributed ever since. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you must have, you undoubtedly were in the room uh, for some probably difficult conversations and some difficult discussions, uh, particularly as it relates to the CPC, which is the recertification, the certification program for nurse anesthetists. What was that like? Uh, coming into what I think had to, I wasn't there because I was in a different boardroom at probably at the same time, <laughs> having the same conversation with a different, in a different way. Uh, what was that like being a part of what was, I, I imagine, quite tense? And just for our listeners, I want to, maybe, maybe let's level set just a second, is that in 2011, the NBCRNA uh, didn't launch, but made, uh, you know, announced that they were changing uh, the recertification program for nurse anesthetists. And, and it was a significant paradigm shift. And as you can imagine, as many of our listeners are acutely aware of, it didn't resonate with everybody in a positive way. And there was significant tension, significant blowback. And our organizations, our respective organizations, uh, and I want to be clear, uh, Kevin's a CRNA and he's a member of the AANA. And he's just like like any other member, uh, he's a part of both organizations. But the leadership of the respective organizations had had levels of antipathy at some times, uh, have had levels of collaboration at some times, and it kind of vacillates depending on the issues and the personalities. But coming into that as an elf, right, emerging leader, is that what they call it? Yes. Uh, had to have been fascinating because when I came into it as a full-fledged, no, I, you know, as someone who had come up through the AANA leadership at the state level and been on the committees or a committee, I was fascinated and a bit perplexed by what was going on. What was your perspective when things were hot, heavy, and in some cases, really ugly? Yeah, that's my, I have a brother that's a CRNA. And whenever he found out I was with the NBCRNA, he said, why are you with the most hated group? And uh, <laughs> I was like, wait, really? Do you think that? Um, I, I 
really, I, being the ELF was an, it was a very uh, a pivotal moment for our, both of our organizations. I've seen a lot of animosity and uh, regarding the CPC. And really, this, my presidency is actually I've taken a step back to say, let's introspectively really look at how this was rolled out and take ownership of what went right, what went wrong. How do we communicate right? And what are ways that we can improve going forward? Because we say we're, that we're an alert, a learning organization. So if we're a learning organization, then we need to learn ourselves and just not say, oh, we're doing everything right. Um, I had a, we just onboarded, uh, we're going to be onboarding our new uh, CEO, uh, Dr. John Preston. And I had a conversation with, uh, with uh, Mr. Sertich, your president of the ANA. And I said, uh, what I do appreciate about the ANA and NBCRNA right now is our relationship is a lot better. Our relationship is a lot better because there's not this uh, uh, nuance of mistrust. And now we're, we're beginning to understand in a growth that, you know, the NBCRNA used to be under the ANA. It was a paternalistic attitude. That now we're appreciating that we're all autonomous organizations, that we have to respect the work that each one is doing, and that we have to uh, support the work that we're doing, that we want to move the profession forward, but we're looking at it all through a different lens. I think that we've, we are still dealing with some of that, that mistrust as we move forward. And what I uh, told our incoming CEO is I said, now is your opportunity to hit the reset button. Mm -hmm. And and I said, uh, as I reached out to you, Randy, I think that you have a great partner in John Preston. And I would wish the community of CRNAs would just stop for a moment and say, okay, there's new leadership. Let's give this person a fair and honest shake and let them lead and, and carry out the mission and vision of the NBCRNA. How they operationalize it may be different. And I think that we're going to focus on communication. Number one, communicating with all of our stakeholders, being realizing that the ANA is a phenomenal partner with us in that and engaging them in the dialogue early as we um, look to the future. Also, I think that um, we need to be more innovative. And you can't use innovation as just a buzzword. Mm. You have to change the culture, culture of an organization. And to change the culture, you have to, um, you have to be uncomfortable because you never are a leader by looking at other leaders and just following them, that you only become a leader by leapfrogging. And that's how we need to be thinking about innovation, whether it be at the ANA side or the NBCRNA side. We also have to be kind in, uh, you know, that whenever, whenever someone does something wrong, say, you know what, you made a mistake, but I don't think it's permanent. And how can we fix this? And I think that we need to do that as a profession. We need to do that as organizations. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So we're, I, I just, we were talking, you know, we're 11 years in almost uh, since the announcement that I wasn't in the room, uh, <laughs> but I've heard 2011 in Boston, uh, yeah. you know, when NBCRNA announced the new CPC program. The Boston Tea Party. The Boston Tea Party. And, <laughs> and, and I think about, I'm a, I'm a history buff, and I think about the, just the series of events that occurred before and after that announcement. And, you know, I've said this a million times is, you know, that this is ripe for some folks who want to do a PhD dissertation on uh, change management, organizational dynamics, all of politics as it relates to certification and, and all of that, because there was a lot that was not done well. And I'll, I'll be the first one to say, uh, even though I wasn't in the room in 2011 and I wasn't in leadership at the AANA, the AANA made mistakes too, clearly, mm -hmm. right? And it's almost like, and hang out there, hang in there for me a minute, and, and then I'll, I'll make this relevant. Yeah. It's like World War One. Like World War One was a series of small events that built up, right? And then next thing you know, you find yourself in, well, a cataclysmic world war. Exactly. And with the this situation, it's, it's all about relationships. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, because I wasn't around and you weren't either, there is a deterioration in the relationships between the AANA and the NBCRNA by 
by key players. Yeah. And trust was lost, right? Yeah. And then we have these things where people are moving out in the middle of the night and then programs are developed and then launched and, and then it serves as a source of significant consternation. Uh, and and there, there's been a lot of damage done for sure. And it, 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 it's nice to hear that you are focusing on two things, I think. I think I heard and challenge mm-hmm. me if you disagree, Kevin. Uh, that the NBC RNA, I, we would say the nice way of saying it, these are opportunities for improvement. <laughs> right. <laughs> A communication, uh, yeah. and 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 I'm sure this is not a surprise to you. You know, and, and there's communication is is not easy. And I consistently have identified that your board, your staff leadership, are composed of brilliant people who I don't know have focused to the degree they should on communication mm-hmm. and engagement. And I and I one of the things that I've done here at the AANA is is really focused on communication and, and building up the communication team and all of it. And I think it's really good to hear, Kevin, that communication and engagement is something that the NBCRNA is really interested in because I think that will be helpful. Yeah. The other piece of this that I, I would love to hear your feedback on is you acknowledging maybe, and I, you didn't say this, so, so yeah. I'm trying to read between the lines, that the CPC program could have been developed better and could have been launched better and could there could have been better communication before, during, and after. How do you see that transitioning into, with a new CEO, uh, you're early in your tenure as president, where do you see that going? Yeah, that's a, you know, I think when I look back, uh, I've engaged a change in transition management uh, specialist um, and brought her in to talk to the NBCRNA. And because there's definitely a science behind it. And just because sometimes we like to think that we're masters of all domains as CRNAs, change and transition is something that we, we do not. Uh, particularly know a lot of. She's also involved in organizational dynamics, and uh, she is an understudy of Angela Duckworth from uh, that uh, has a book out about grit and at, from the University of Pennsylvania and about positive psychology. And I wanted her to talk to our board about change and transition. And it was amazing that whenever she talked to the board, it, they had a sort of an aha moment of mistakes that were made by not only our, our previous boards, which is, you know, we all make mistakes, but also the ANA mm. is that, as you said, it's all these little events that build up and then you get to a point that you, it's, it's hard to repair. And then people want to hold on to those old anxieties, that, that old emotion. And whenever some point part of, of uh, the transition is to let go of those. So I'm hoping John Preston is that person that allows people to let go of that back feeling and move forward as an organization. Things that were not done right, I think you have to create a sense of urgency. The the uh, recertification program, and I think recertification, that's really a misnomer. We should not be using recertification anymore. We should be talking about continued competence. You recertify, you certify whenever you come into the organization. And then what you're doing now is just demonstrating continued competence. That as you move in an area of focus, that we want to ensure that you're being competent because you're building a knowledge set that's different than when we, we bring you in here. Because we need to test you on everything. And so Number one, we have to create a sense of urgency because 40 years of not changing, the other the people start to detract. With the Affordable Care Act, there are people that move into this space that now are demanding a larger voice, and that is the patient. Before, there's a fee-for-service. Now, the patient's demanding a voice in healthcare. So you have AARP that's saying, wait, you get continuing education by going to the golf course? That shouldn't happen. The other thing is you need to form strong collaborations, and, and, and I don't think we had that strong collaboration whenever we moved in. So whenever you don't have that strong collaboration, people get to form their own collaborations and they could be on the opposite side. So if you think about when you go back to war, the world wars is forming the axis and allies. 
is that here we are together. We're in the same profession. So we're part of the axis. And so we need to make sure who's all part of that. And we need to form that collaboration moving forward. We're now 10 years into the CPC program. And in June, I'm excited to say that I'm bringing the change of transition management expert in. And at the time the CPC was created, it was science-based, but there was not a lot of science in this space. A lot of people want to say, well, there's no evidence based in looking at anesthesia literature. That's the wrong place to be looking. You need to be looking in adult learning theory, as well as psychology of psychometrics. And in that space, we understand some things. What I'm looking at now is people chiseled at the CPC program that the monster that they created is no longer the same thing. And so it's not, not serving the same purpose. So moving forward, what we need to do is look at how do you innovate in that space? How do you personalize? That, this, that what people perceive as an assessment is truly really should not be an assessment. It should be a self-awareness of their knowledge. What we do know from the science is that people are poor assessors of their, health, of their own knowledge. And we see this all the time in healthcare. You'll go in the break room and people think that they're the gift of God to anesthesia and you go relieve them and it's just random acts of anesthesia happening in the room. Hmm. And so what we need to do is be able to provide input. Also, whenever you take a test, if you actually, or take an assessment, if you get something wrong, there should be some feedback on why it's wrong. Because we've identified you have a pothole and we need to fill that pothole in immediately. Otherwise, you carry it going forward and you really never know about it. So I think there's opportunities moving forward in, uh, in ways to innovate in that space. Whenever you look at adult learning theory, there's things called interspace learning uh, as well as repetition. So if you get something right, you shouldn't be asked that question as often. But stuff that you get wrong, we should ask you those things more often till we build your knowledge base up in that space. And also, I think another opportunity is looking at the close claims database. We know how people are sued. So if we know how people are sued, how do we ensure that all CRNAs in the nation get evidence-based practice that look at those things? Because whenever I do expert legal testimony, it's the same things that are happening over and over and over again. That whenever I write my reports, I can actually cut and paste a lot of these things in. And so I think that there are ways that we can collaborate and reach out to whether it be the foundation, the ANA, to look directly into these things and ensure that our assessments include these things. That's really interesting. And, and I want to double click on the concept of an assessment. And mm -hmm. so, you know, one of the things that I think the, the CPC has in, in my, and I don't know the science as well as you do. I'm just a simple country anesthetist, Kevin, <laughs> is that, that you it's know, the, summit, yeah, sorry, the summative exam yeah. is, is been a source of considerable controversy. And, and I have consistently yeah. uh, been someone who has been vocally opposed to it, not because I, don't, I have a problem with taking tests, is that I don't, I have not been convinced uh, that a summative exam is, an, is a particularly sensitive way or accurate way of ensuring competency, continued competency. Yeah. This is where we might agree to disagree. But what I would be interested, because I still feel that way, uh, self, low self-awareness or not, is Am I hearing from you that moving maybe away from a summative every four years or some every eight years or every 10 years, depending on the, the clinical specialty, is probably not the future? And it's more of a longitudinal in, uh, kind of approach where there's a continuous or almost continuous uh, engagement with the professional to determine where they're at with their, their knowledge and skills uh, and, and, and abilities. Yeah. I, I think that... Uh... I've, I've traveled all across uh, the nation giving CPC lectures, and I've really tried to listen to everyone with their input. And people want it to be tailored. They want it to be individual. They want to have options. You mentioned longitudinal assessment. And I think one thing that we need to put into perspective is that COVID has taught us a lot. COVID has taught us that how we get our education, how we get our knowledge is in inefficient. If you're getting it in a journal, it's delayed. If you're getting it in a book, it's really delayed. 
And so we need to have, be able to have a way to push out knowledge really quickly, especially as it relates to COVID. We could have pushed out knowledge and longitudinal assessment, as an example, would provide that avenue. The, the idea and notion of a summative assessment is the basis of all your education. And so it is grounded in science. The problem is, is that we're not talking about, uh, we're talking about an assessment, but not an assessment that is punitive an assessment that is a, as a collaboration or a relationship. And that's why we need to change that term from recertification, which certification is a test to test knowledge, to actually continued competence. And so, you know, in a longitudinal assessment platform, just thinking out loud, what's one thing that we could do is I can push out questions that are not graded about COVID that really CRNA should know about. That aerosolized events. How long does uh, how long is someone infected with COVID? How long before someone exhibits signs and symptoms of COVID? And we should be able to push that knowledge out and see how people uh, perform to see if we can fill in these knowledge gaps that actually directly affect patient care at the point at the, the at the tip of the spear. And that tip of the spear is where we're where someone's delivering care. And so I think longitudinal assessment. Uh, you know, I would like to explore that with the board because I think that that is the cutting edge. My children go to private school here in the DC area, and I'm not allowed to help them with their homework. They do a longitudinal assessment platform. It learns their behaviors, what they get right, what they get wrong. And then it sort of builds them up in math and stuff like that, and they do phenomenally better. And so the problem with the sum of an assessment, it's one data point in time. The great thing about a longitudinal assessment, it's multiple data sets. And this multiple data sets is actually the basis for a lot of things that came out of Wharton marketing called discongruent analysis. So discongruent analysis is uh, if I ask you, Randy, what kind of car do you want? And you say, Kevin, I want something economical, good, good gas mileage. But then you pull up the next day in a Hummer H2. And I'm like, wait, it's not cheap because it's good, 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 good gas mileage. So that's sort of subliminally what's running behind your mind. And that's actually the same principles that work with uh, artificial intelligence, data analytics, predictive analytics. It begins to learn your behaviors, your, your routines, and that's how you can individualize uh, assessments and, and build people's knowledge up. And so to me, that's the most exciting area because we can learn how people learn or how they fall off the curve as, as people age. Because we do know, what's if I were to ask you, Randy, what's the smartest day that you had as a CRNA? Mm -hmm. The day I took the, the big test, probably. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so how do we continue that going forward? Is that um, we begin to learn what falls off. And some things which should naturally fall off because you don't do it. You might be not be doing cardiac anymore. So should we be asking you cardiac questions? No, but should we be asking you questions about blood pressure medications? Of course, because if you're sued, they're gonna ask you two questions. What would a reasonable and prudent CRNA do? So there's basis for what's reasonable and prudent. And so we need to tease those things out. I think the science right now is exploding in this market, especially for longitudinal assessment, as people have moved forward with it. And so I think it provides opportunity for options for CRNAs, number one, but also individualized comparison. Also gaming theory, where if you think that you're really good, that I can, I can actually now compare you with your cohort and say, this is where you really fall, to give you a self-awareness of your own knowledge. Yeah, I'll also say, since you mentioned self-awareness a couple of times, I'll call out that low self-awareness is not isolated to clinical professionals. Uh, there's data where it demonstrates that 85% of us think that we have high self-awareness, but in actuality, only about 12% of us have even modest degrees or modest levels of self-awareness. So I think it, it demonstrates itself undoubtedly in the clinical environment. And I think it does, bode, uh, it does support having a longitudinal approach where we can evaluate uh, individuals' knowledge and challenge them and say, well, maybe you're not yes. <laughs> as knowledgeable you are in this area. But I, I got to ask you, Kevin, because I'm really curious, 
Now let's zoom in. What, yeah. what does all of this mean in the near term in terms of how the NBCRNA is going to approach the CPC uh, in its current configuration? Is this, is, what, is this what we have for, let's say, the, the short or midterm time horizon? Or is the NBCRNA starting to have conversations and will potentially start be making decisions around modifying the program again? Yeah. What, what's your, I'll, I'll put you in the hot seat here and ask you to make some predictions. Uh, and maybe I'll, I'll get you in trouble. But I, I'm curious what, what your thoughts are there. You know what? There's no hot seat. I think in, uh, the, the first thing is to be transparent. And so uh, I'll tell you what, on June, we're going to have a generative discussion. The CPC, we're a decade out now. So whenever it was made, we know what the science was that was behind it. That science has changed considerably. So if we're looking into the future, what do we need? In that room, we're also going to have our change and transition uh, management expert saying, now, if this is where we're thinking about going, now, how do we approach all of our stakeholders and, 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 and engage them in this process? And that's sort of what's different than the Boston, is that we probably didn't do that well. And um, so we want to ensure that we're engaging people, hearing the voice of, of all of our stakeholders, and then forming what that plan is, is, that we can create a scaffolding, but then the stakeholders can add on to that scaffolding to build a, a better foundation. I think that uh, as we move forward in that process, um, I think that... Although you mentioned longitudinal assessment, I'm a huge proponent of longitudinal assessment. And whenever the early discussions with the NBCRNA about longitudinal assessment, they were talking about 2032. And I said, you know what, if we talk about 2032, we'll be like Kodak, which is bankrupt, because they didn't want to move to that digital era. And so they stayed in their, in their core business. And where are they at? They created, yeah, they, they created digital photography and then they got disrupted by it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, yeah. and so I, I think that this to me is, is um, this is something ex excites me from all of my talk to all, all the CPC lectures. I've been building a foundation for what we're going to be talking about in June. And uh, I'm excited by it because I think that we need to be able to tailor education. We need to be able to collect data because data will be the driver for many things, not on the data for the, the demographics. Of, of our population. But what we don't know is that once people take the NCE, we don't know what their knowledge is walking around. So I think an important first step is people to take that first assessment because that gives us baseline data on what do CRNAs that are working in practice know. And that, so that's a very, although it's a, just a, a one point test, it gives us sort of the baseline of where to go. And based off of that, we need to evaluate all of our programs. And so we have the evaluation research group, which is looking at all of our programming. We've looked at longitudinal assessment. We are, we're probably going to be uh, exploring, should we beta test it, just like we did with the, uh, the assessment uh, and remote proctoring. So I think we need to beta test it. So I think that if you move forward, there'd probably be three railroad tracks. Number one, here's the CPC. We know what's right. We know what's wrong about it. Number two, building a second track as a bridge to sort of temporarily get us into an area while we're building our ultimate goal. Mm. And, uh, and our ultimate goal would be something that would be uh, data robust, that it would be uh, something that you can mine. Not only it's something that you can mine, but you can change uh, on, on, a, on, a, on a spin of a dime. And something that you can change on a spin of a dime is what, what information can you push out to people and, uh, and how do you tailor it for how CRNAs are currently practicing. Yeah. It's another thing that pops up to my mind, and this is where I see what I would characterize is, you know, every organization has a profile of its board. That I, so I look at the NBCRNA, I say, this is the profile, the average personality uh, of the board member of a NBCRNA. And I would say even in executive leadership is data, data, data. Uh, the ANA would have a different profile, right? Mm -hmm. And 
because it's it's a different mission, different focus, different politics, all of that. And one of the things that I would challenge, mm-hmm. uh, invite, let me use challenge as a bad word. I would invite yeah. uh, is uh, invite the NBCRNA board to think about this. Yes, because data makes people think for right. sure, but emotions make people act. Yeah. And, and think about this in, yes, building the, the best possible program, but not lose focus of the relationship and the emotional implication related to the change management. And that's why I think you know, I'm happy to hear that you're bringing in a change management expert, because I, if you ask me to diagnose what went wrong in between 2007 or whatever things got weird to 2000 today, it has been around an insufficient focus on engagement, collaboration, change management, and thinking that data is going to persuade people is is not, well, it's just not human nature. Hundreds of thousands of years of human nature have demonstrated that data does not persuade. Oh, go, go to Facebook uh, yeah. and look at the, the, the conversations on Facebook and Twitter. And it's, it, there's no amount of data, right? So it, it really does kind of boil down to, in my opinion, uh, is thinking about this holistically is not only a data-driven decision, but also relationship uh, and, and change management driven process. Yeah, I think you raised a great point there, Randy. Um, I sit on the Surgeons Advisory Committee at the NIH, and uh, Anthony Fauci, he said that he hates to be the skunk at the party because he would always talk about data and yeah. uh, as COVID was coming out. And I think that um, you, communication is all about, it's more marketing. It's drawing that emotion that people need to connect with something. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, Dr. Preston understands that. And I think we'll take a different tact on how we communicate with people is that when you look at change and transition management, not only is it creating a sense of urgency, creating a form of collaboration, but drawing an emotional component to it is that people have to understand why you're doing something. And it's just not change for the sake of change. It's change for a reason that is going to have a brighter picture for you moving forward. And people need to see what that picture is. And if you just say data, 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 some people don't function that way. And so what we need to do is actually look at, draw, draw an emotional connection to each individual person where they're at and, and show them how um, programming moving forward is going to be connecting with that. That we're, that we're not there to just assess people and, and drum up data, but we're there to actually be a partner in how they, in how they deliver care and a partner in how they, um, in how they do uh, move forward through the profession. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. Well, thanks so much for your time. Before I, before I let you go to go build some more uh, microscopic ventilators <laughs> or whatever else you all are doing there, I, I have a question for you that I stole from Dave Stachowiak, who uh-huh. does a podcast called Coaching for Leaders. And anyone who's interested in leadership, I highly recommend it. And his question is, what is something that you've changed your mind on in the last year? What have you been wrong about? <laughs> well, my wife would tell you a lot, uh, yeah. but um, I would just like to say um, I've changed my idea on what is change. And I think that whenever you talk about change, you need to take a systems perspective to change and that you have to embrace change from a change in management uh, transition uh, science. And so what I would say is that my concept of change is to every day, whatever I'm doing to think about change and say, if I can do anything right now, what would I do? Because if you develop that growth mindset that way, then whenever it comes time for changing under constraints, it's a lot easier. If you're asked to change under constraints, it's a lot harder to do because you don't have that growth mindset and how to do it and how to approach it. And so I think that professionally, I think we need to adopt that. Personally, I've adopted that. And I think organizationally, that's what I'm pushing the MCRNA to do too. Oh, good stuff. Thank you so much, Kevin. Really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise, Randy. I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. 
Thanks so much for being on the show, Kevin. Really enjoyed the conversation. And thanks to you, our listeners, well, for listening in. If you like what you're hearing, please feel free to share with your friends and colleagues. And thank you for joining Moving the Needle.